Hi, friends. Welcome to Season 5 of The Activity Continues, a paranormal podcast. I'm Amy, the producer and host of this show, along with Megan and the other Amy. We are three soul friends who love to talk about the Dead Files TV show, along with other spooky and spooky-adjacent things. We are just starting our third year, and it's going to be the best one yet. Hi, everyone. I'm Megan, our resident scaredy cat. (laughs) I love this stuff, but it absolutely terrifies me. (laughs) It doesn't terrify me. Me neither. Most of the time. Hey, everyone. I'm the other Amy, sometimes referred to as Amy, Amy P, or AP. And I'm the voice of reason in the chaos, trying to keep these two spooky, goofy, lovely ladies in line. (laughs) We're creating a community of like-minded friends who love to discuss all things paranormal. Along with our thoughts and tangents, you will also hear listener stories and interviews with paranormal professionals, Dead Files clients, and people with personal paranormal experiences. So far, we've spoken to a witch, an intuitive, a shaman, a UFO abductee, and a handful of Dead Files clients. We're always looking for more cool and interesting people to talk to. So if you're interested, please reach out to theactivitycontinues at gmail.com or fill out the guest intake form on our website, theactivitycontinues.com. We'd love to hear from you. Come join us where the The activity activity continues. Welcome back to Volstead Land. I'm Heather and this is Amy. Hello. Join us as we take a trip back in time to the 1920s and 30s in Minneapolis and discover the city's underworld. If you've not yet listened to the previous episodes, I recommend you check them out as this will make much more sense if you have heard those. If you have listened before, you'll know that Volstead Land tells the stories of some unsavory characters and the shit they get into. Some of the details might be unsettling to some more sensitive listeners. This is not for kids. Also, we swear. Please proceed with that in mind. Hi, friends. Amy here. Before we get started, I just wanted to do a full disclosure about this episode and the last one. Heather and I recorded these two episodes on the same day, so we won't be talking about another cocktail. So just go ahead and mix up another batch of the bootleg cocktail we talked about in the last episode, or make something of your own and let us know what you picked. Maybe we'll make it in a future episode. 
I also want to admit that we had some technical difficulties with this recording, as you already know if you watched the video version of the episode on YouTube. We really wanted to record in the same room, so I spent hours setting up this new recording layout, testing levels, sound quality, etc. Then, when we were getting started, something went kaflooey with one of the laptops we were using. It decided it would no longer connect to Zoom, so we had to break out a backup laptop. Well, my voice ended up not recording very well at all. And also, as I had feared, our voices were caught on both our own mics as well as each other's. The result is a ton of reverb. I attempted to make some magic in both the sound editing software I use, as well as an online tool, and they both helped a ton, but it's still not perfect. So I apologize for that. I hope you can still enjoy it. So sit back, grab a drink of choice, and join us for some talk about more bootlegging and murder. Okay, let's time travel a little back to 1933, when there was an investigation into what they called a rum ring. It's really just a marketing name for a group of bootleggers who joined forces to import and export alcohol during Prohibition time in order to make money, a lot of money. The feds caught wind of it, investigated it, and eventually, well, I'll let Heather tell you. The syndicate was led by a rival of Kid Can, Irish mobster Tommy Banks, while the combination was Izzy's domain. They joined forces in 1933. Other higher-ups rounding out the top four in the ring were Edward Barney Berman and Max Stearns. Can and Barney Berman were also tried on conspiracy charges in the Urschel kidnapping, along with two other men whose names you may recognize, Clifford Skelly and Peter Valder. We know that Kid Can got off. Berman was convicted and sentenced to five years at Leavenworth. At the time of his arrest, he was out on a $10,000 bond while he was appealing his conviction. The ring began operation in January of 1933. They shipped in alcohol from as far away as Newark, New Jersey. So far. So far. (laughs) Under fictitious names. Then it was distributed to stills on farms in Edina, Mendota, Crystal, and Plymouth Townships in Minnesota, where it was distilled, rectified, and purified, and later sold in wholesale and retail lots. Another important figure here is Conrad Alfin, who was the auditor and the fixer. His job was to contact the farmers, rent their barns, and cellars for the rectifying plants. The ring was headquartered in hotel room offices, as well as a phone bank was set up to handle the thriving business. It was over by International Market Square, for those of you who are in the Minneapolis area. There were other men who were the still keepers, cookers, and livery men. There were also farmers who rented out their property and land for stills. So there were a lot of people involved in this operation. Um, The feds cracked down, and after some investigation, 38 men were indicted for conspiracy to violate the federal internal revenue laws covering illicit liquor. On December 21st, 1933, Kid Can, Max Stearns, and Edward Barney Berman surrendered to the police department. Tommy Banks surrendered the next day. 
There were four men of the 38 who were already in prison under other liquor charges, and they pleaded not guilty and said the charges should be abated because they were already serving time for liquor offenses. Several months later, on March 13, 1933, seven men pled guilty. Tommy Banks, the leader of the syndicate, he was fined $2,000. Isidore Blumenfeld, Izzy, one year in the Minneapolis workhouse and granted a stay of 30 days. He only ended up serving 10 months. And this is where he met Wesley Andersh, who testified against him at his murder trial three years later. Also, we had Max Brownie Stearns. He was fined $1,500. And Edward Barney Berman, also convicted in the Urschel kidnapping, but out on bond while appealing that conviction. He was sentenced to one year at Leavenworth, stay granted. Max Berman pleaded guilty to possessing counterfeit internal revenue stamps and was fined $50. As soon as the judge imposed the sentences, A.M. Carey, the attorney for the men, pulled out a huge roll of bills from his pocket and paid the fines in bills ranging from 5 to $100. The pleas came after many conversations between the government and the attorneys for the defendants. Apparently, the government's case had crumbled to pieces because most of the evidence or proof came from bootleggers who were no longer willing to testify. The result of this investigation was a compromise agreed upon by the U.S. District Attorney, the head of the government's alcohol beverage unit, a government investigator, and others. One of the lawyers stated, In view of the difficulties we could foresee in prosecuting this case, it was agreed by all concerned that we ask the court to depose of the matter in the manner I have recommended. And what he recommended was that these seven plead guilty. I get that they thought it was going to be a real pain in the ass and that it was going to take a long time and cost a lot of money. But what I don't understand is why, why wouldn't the criminals be like, too bad? Right. You don't have a case. Why am I guilty? Planning guilty? I don't right. really understand. But it was a conversation between all their lawyers and it made sense to them at the time. And we don't know that ins and outs. We don't know the details. Okay. So at the same time that this wrong wing, wrong wing, wrong wing, at the same time that this rum ring was being investigated, a man named Conrad Alton comes into the story. As you now know, he is considered the fixer or the money guy for the liquor syndicate. So basically he works for Kid Can and Tommy Banks. I won't go too much into his history, um, but he is a pretty normal guy. Uh, according to the papers, until um, about 1926, when he is charged with buying stolen automobiles. Mm. He claimed he didn't know they were stolen, and so they let him go. Then a year later, he was working at a resort in Two Rivers, and it was raided, and all the liquor was confiscated. He was a bootlegger, which is probably... Unleash the power of stories anywhere, anytime with Audible. Immerse yourself in gripping stories, insightful knowledge, and captivating characters anytime, anywhere. Audible is your library on the go. With hundreds of thousands of titles across every genre, there's a world of reading waiting for your ears. 
Listen while you cook, clean, or commute. Free your eyes to conquer your day, all while feeding your mind. Start your 30-day free trial today and discover the joy of listening. Go to audibletrial.com slash TAC. That stands for The Activity Continues. With your free 30-day trial, you get one credit, two credits if you're a Prime member, good for any premium selection titles you like, yours to keep. You get the Audible Plus catalog of podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible originals. Listen all you want. No credits needed. Again, that is audibletrial.com slash TAC. If you're a regular listener, you know we love our three spirit drinks. They are the non-alcoholic spirit drinks that are taking the world by storm. Three Spirit is a range of three distinct drinks, each with its own unique flavor and effect. The Livener is a refreshing and invigorating drink that is perfect for starting your day or night. The Social Elixir is a smooth and sophisticated drink that's perfect for sharing with friends. And the Nightcap is a calming and relaxing drink that's perfect for winding down before bed. All three drinks are made with plant-based ingredients and are free from alcohol, gluten, and sugar. They're also vegan and ethically sourced. So whether you're looking for a delicious and refreshing drink to enjoy on its own or a sophisticated non-alcoholic alternative to cocktails, Three Spirit is the perfect choice for you. Try Three Spirit today and discover the difference. Visit us.3spiritdrinks.com and use the promo code The Activity Continues for 15% off your entire order. Cheers! That was the best one yet. ...how he met Kid Can and his cronies. In October of 1929, two stills in his house exploded, and it says that his wife was arrested and released on $500 bond, but no further mention of what happened to him or her that I could find. As Heather mentioned, he was the person who contacted farmers and arranged for Kid Can's group to use them for their stills to make the booze. In November of 1933, there was an actual roundup of guys that the feds thought were involved in this ring. Alfin was at the house, but managed to escape out of a window and fled to a waiting car who whisked him away. He was one of the 38 people indicted on the liquor charge, but also one of the top four that the feds were looking for, the important guys. The other three are, as you know, Max Stearns, Barney Berman, and Isidore Blumenfeld. The fourth was Tommy Banks, who surrendered the day after these guys did. As the bookkeeper for the ring, he would have been one of the government's most helpful witnesses in the prosecution of members of the rum ring. Alfin had already helped the feds earlier by giving them valuable information in the Urschel kidnapping, which we not only talked about previously, but Heather covered in Episode 5, The Muckrakers. Around this time, Conrad Alfin decided to leave the syndicate. His plan was to quit and move to Florida, as you do when you retire. (laughs) So this ballsy guy had attempted to reach a settlement with the syndicate. Like, basically, he wanted a severance package, which, I mean, from what I can tell, granted, it's just movies and TV and books. Podcasts. Podcasts. It's not super easy to get out of a mob situation. That's my understanding. Yeah. They just don't give you a watch and let you go. 
Apparently, he threatened to talk to the feds unless he received sufficient money to retire to Florida. So on December 19th, the night before he was planning to go to Florida, he visited a nightclub on Cedar Avenue. It was apparently his going away party, which it ended up being. Uh, During the party, a woman warned Alton that there was someone watching him. And she said, they're putting the finger on you, as she pointed out several suspicious men seated near them. Then the woman left in a hurry. It's unclear what else happened at the club, but within an hour of that, he was dead. At about 11 p.m. that night, a St. Paul firefighter found his body in a ditch near Prior Lake on Cedar Avenue with 14 bullet holes in him. They don't mess around. No. The police put together that he was thrown from a car. Then he got up and staggered to his feet when, quote, a machine gun poured leaden death from a close range. He was discovered about 30 minutes after he died and he was still warm. Mm. In the Minnesota January, February, no, sorry. December. (laughs) In the Minnesota December cold. I don't know if there was any snow. I checked the weather that date and I think it was like 23 degrees that night but I don't know about snow. He had been stripped of any of his papers in an effort to hide his identity. In his pockets were $1.18 and change, a key, two fountain pens, one containing red ink, a watch, a pocket comb, and a pocket mirror. Another more expensive watch was still on his wrist. He was identified by a St. Paul policeman, but also many police officers and federal agents viewed the body. At the time, the area where he was killed was a really remote area. And in fact, according to Google Maps, it's still pretty remote. It's farm country. There's not much there now. There's a paved road, but it's just grass on both sides and a bit of dirt, gravel sort of Perfect place to dump a body. Perfect. I mean, even now, 100 years later. Well, not quite 100 years, 70 years. Uh, No, I can't do that. 90 years later. 90 years later. Math is hard. <laughs> I know, especially today. <laughs> uh, and not because of these. I've only had. Oh, you're faster than me. I'm talking too much. Oh, I'll post photos of that desolate area where he was dumped. It is believed that syndicate higher ups imported assassins to do the killing. I feel like this is a reoccurring theme. Like they keep saying that it must be somebody from Chicago who came in and did it. And I don't know if that's just a cover for our guys here or if that was actually a thing. Like, maybe it was harder to catch somebody if he was from Chicago. So if they just come into Minneapolis, kill someone. Yeah, do the job, go home. Yep. So now I'm wondering, I kind of want to look into some Chicago murders like this and see if any of them could have been our guys. Oh, yeah. So after Conrad Alton's death, the police raided his apartment and found a lot of documents that the government planned to use to prosecute tax evasions by members of the syndicate all over the country. I just don't understand why the killers didn't go to his pad first and clean it out. Like, he's chilling at the nightclub, right? They would have had probably plenty of time to go and throw everything away. Hmm. Um, I don't understand why all those papers were around and why, especially if he was planning on leaving in the morning, if he wanted to be rid of all of this, you think he would have you know, burned them, thrown them out, something. I don't know. Just seems odd. Side note, machine gun used in this murder is the same one that killed a police officer just a few months before this. 
I don't know what that murder is. I Googled, but I only have access to the papers that are on newspapers.com and Pioneer Press is not one of them. The Pioneer Press does have a website that has archives, but you have to be, you have to have an account in order to see them and you can't get an account unless you live in St. Paul. And I'm not, you don't live in St. Paul. Yeah, I don't live in St. Paul and I'm not willing to pretend like I do just to get access. Right. So if any of our St. Paul friends want to be St. Paul branch investigators for us and you want to dig that up in your St. Paul papers, let me know. I'm sure I can find other things to ask you about <laughs> because I not, uh, because I only have Kid Can's Minneapolis criminal record too. So a lot of when it would say he was brought in and held, then turned over to the St. Paul police. I don't know what happened to him after that. Right. Also kind of interesting, the night of the murder, the morgue received four calls from women asking to confirm the identity of the body, but the police were never able to identify who those women were. And my guess is it was just the guys, the cronies, you know, who wanted to make sure that he was dead, but knew that if they called themselves, their voices would be recognized. So they got... So they just had their girlfriend's call or something. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. That's just my guess. He was 43 years old. He had a wife and two children, and no one was ever charged with the murder. I don't even know if they really investigated it. And he was killed with a machine gun. Yeah. You'd think that would generate some investigation. I, I mean, they did investigate a little to know that it was the same machine gun that killed the other officer in St. Paul. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know what? It's possible now that I'm saying this out loud and I'm thinking about this. This happened in St. Paul, and this was a St. Paul police issue. So it's very possible that it was all over the Pioneer Press, and it just didn't make it to the Minneapolis papers. So again, St. Paul friends, if you have any way of finding that out, we'd love to know. So we are nearing the end of Kid Can's reign in Minneapolis here. After the murder of Walter Liggett, he either went fairly clean or just got better at not getting caught. We'll talk about these things he got up to in the 1940s through 1960s when he was splitting his time between here and Florida, when he met Meyer Lansky, who was big time. This guy was like Murder, Inc., big time. And there are a couple of scandals, one involving, quote, unquote, white slavery, which is sex trafficking, and another involving the dismantling of the transit system in Minneapolis. And both of these things were things he got into a heap of trouble for. And I won't give away any more than that. Thanks again for giving us your time. We hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like some extras, visit us on Patreon. And as I mentioned, I did add a $1 tier. As always, I'm looking for more personal stories from people who are descendants of folks who knew these characters. So please email or leave a message. If you go to our website, when you're looking at the page in the lower right hand corner, there's a little microphone. And if you just click on that, you can leave a voice message, you know, as long as you have a microphone on your computer or just use your phone. And there's a contact form also too, where you can leave a typed up message. I am planning on doing a full episode uh, just on all the stories that I've gathered from people about Kid Can. I am also thinking of retelling the story in a totally different way. This season has been more like peeling an onion. I was uncovering information in sort of real time, 
Like I would say, oh, I'm going to do 1923 right now. And I would read all the newspapers in 1923 and try to unravel everything that was going on in sort of real time as it was being released to the public. And so I was kind of reporting on these things as they were being revealed. And then I'd find that later there might be an article like in 1965 that explains something way better than they did in 1923. So I kind of want to go back and retell everything with the grand picture of everything. And when Heather and I first talked about this in the beginning, we talked about doing it like telling the story and then having parts of it acted out like little plays, little vignettes sort of thing. But I realized that somebody would have to write that. And I know now that I'm not a writer. I always thought that I was. I think I can write blog posts about food, but I don't think I'm any good at like writing a story arc and everything. I have taken some creative writing classes lately and they are kicking my ass. And I, I realized I'm just not good at it. As much as I love doing it, I'm just not good at it. So we would need to get a writer in here to do that. Also, I was eager to start this podcast and get everything out there. And so I probably jumped the gun a little bit. But this is just one way to tell it. And I'm just thinking that there are other ways that might be fun, too. We'll think about it. And listeners, let me know what you think. Is this something you'd like to hear? Don't forget to subscribe so you don't miss the next episode and visit us on all our social media platforms for extra content. Also, if you're a fan, please consider supporting us by leaving a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, even if you don't listen on Apple. It really helps us out. Fulsted Land is hosted by me, Amy, and Heather. It's produced by me and is a part of the Collected Sounds Podcast Network. The theme music is The Last Prayer for Isidore Blumenfeld by Paolo Forlì. The background music is The Velvets by Canal. Okie doke.